In a society that's deeply polarized, the idea of grace seems unlikely, but it's the very thing we need now more than ever. We need stories about the relentless love of God and his forgiveness of sins. And that is a quote from the publicity for the book that we're about to talk about. One such story of grace is that of the slave owner John Newton and his famous hymn Amazing Grace. Now in a new book from W Publishing Group, an imprint of Thomas Nelson, authors Bruce Hindmarsh and Craig Borlays reveal Newton's tale of sin and salvation. Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. I'm joined once again by my co-host, Rito, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston. Rito, say hello. Hi, Howie. Very well. And you, sir? I'm pretty good. You're good, right. And our very special guests on the podcast this time, not that Rito isn't special, he is, are the two authors of the book Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton and the Surprising Story Behind the Song. Bruce Hindmarsh is the James M. Houston Professor of Spiritual Theology and Professor of the History of Christianity at Regent College in Vancouver. He wrote his doctoral thesis on Newton uh, at Oxford. Bruce is a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a past president of the American Society of Church History. And Craig is a New York Times, Sunday Times and international best-selling ghostwriter of dramatic, engaging memoirs. Over the last two decades, he's written more than 55 books, working with a diverse range of authors for a global audience. Gentlemen, Craig and Bruce, hi, welcome. Hey, Brent. Hey, Rito. Hi, Brent. Nice to meet you. Rito, uh, good to be with you. Look, it's an absolute pleasure and a pleasure to be dealing with this gritty, raw story of John Newton. And my goodness, have you brought it alive uh, on the page, that's for sure. I'm just wondering, though, how has Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, found its way into the fabric of, I was going to say American life, but Christian life generally, I suppose. It's a fascinating story. And in a way, there's a a kind of biography of John Newton, but also a biography of this song. You could trace it through 250 years. We're having the 250-year anniversary of the hymn, and that was the occasion for the uh, the book and also a film that's coming out um, later this year or early next year. Uh, but after John Newton presented the hymn in 1773 for his congregation, you know, it made it into a few hymn books. It might have been known a little bit. But it really, in even in Britain, it was not really well known until the 1950s. And it really became an American story. And it got picked up um, in America by different churches and in different hymnals. But we don't know what tune it was sung to originally. It, uh, you know, hymns would have been written without necessarily being tied to a tune. But it found the tune that we know it. Uh, to, to which we know it today, about 200 years ago in the American South. And I think that's the first reason why it became popular. It was a kind of a magic in this tune and these words coming together. There is something universal about the tune. It's the uh, pentatonic scale. Uh, Craig could probably talk about that better than me as a musician, but it's uh, the five-note pentatonic scale that's so central to world music, folk, blues, a black gospel. And uh, so I think there's something about the music. And then um, a second reason why I think this song ended up going so widely and so deeply in the 20th century, and uh, first of all in hymn books, and then in the commercial marketplace with Mahalia Jackson, and then Judy Collins, the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards on bagpipes. It charted on the top... Yeah, it charted, charted on the top 40, Billboard top 40. But I think part of the reason isn't just the music, uh, 
But as it moved into a secular world, the, the received version of the hymn, which includes a verse that uh, that John Newton did not write, when we've been there 10,000 years, but the, the, the most common version of the hymn doesn't mention the name Jesus or Jesus Christ or even God until the that last stanza, no less days to sing God's praise. So I think what happened, and this is this is my theory, I'm not entirely sure, but I think what happened is a song that expressed gratitude to God for grace received. And in a more theological age, the grace in Jesus Christ became in the 20th century a cry for grace that could be in principle sung by a Jew or a Muslim or a Christian or a person of no particular faith. But the words acknowledge that life can hit you with enormous wretchedness, that we can be absolutely lost, and that something happened as a historical accident that the hymn didn't actually sort of name something really churchy or Christian-y, that, but that people could say, at sooner or later, we realize the human condition desperately needs grace and kindness and mercy, and we realize that most in times of tragedy. But I think above all, it's the it's the it's something about the universality of that idea that um, the human condition needs grace, and right. uh, people realize that. Yeah. Yeah, Craig, do you want to follow on from that as a musician? Well, no, Bruce has stitched me up there. Like, I wasn't <laughs> a very good musician. I can never remember any names, I could never read any music, but I, I, you know, I could remember how it felt, you know, which, and that was part of the deal. My little segue here is that, um, I think what, a, what appealed to me, I, I came pretty blank to, to this amazing grace project as a mutual friend of Bruce and ours put us in touch and, um, suggested that we talk. And my first reaction was like, well, it's going to be, that sounds dull, like a book about a hymn. How excited could that be? That, that surely has got a very, very, very limited appeal. But when I did a little bit of reading about um, John Newton and then when Bruce and I connected um, and had a, had a call, it became clear that, man, this is a really rich story. Um, it's full of sort of a unique, um, really gripping plot. But underneath it, what it's got is a really engaging story that's full of human truth, shame, mm -hmm. guilt, mistakes, correction, grace. Um, and that's what appealed to me. And I, I think, yeah, for me, that that's the, the power of the story. Yeah, why the novel format? Why did you probably already answer that, I think, but why did you both decide to, to go for the novel format? I, I couldn't do anything else. <laughs> I'm limited. Like, I really yeah. didn't like Bruce is like ridiculously clever and um, knows so much stuff. But I find writing in an academic way just it's impossible. Like I just I can't do it. I'm, I'm, I don't my brain isn't wired that way. But I just I, for me, so I like reading stories. And I like to imagine myself in that person's situation. You know, I don't know anything about tennis. But when I read Andre Agassi's open, I felt like I, you know, I knew what it's like to, you know, you know, hate tennis and to be driven by tennis and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I find those kind of books, those kind of films, really, really powerful. Mm, and yeah. I think I just, with a story like John Newton's, there was in there's so much in it that actually, if you can um, immerse yourself in it, um, then it's a really kind of satisfying experience. I think that's what I wanted to do with with the book. And amazingly. Bruce was up for it, which is like that is it's a big deal for Bruce to put his reputation on the line because, <laughs> you know, obviously in this kind of stuff, the temptation is to make a lot of stuff up. 
and Bruce, we have to be really careful about that. Um, normally, we, we're out of fear a little bit. I remember we had this conversation about what conventions we were going to use. And I was joking earlier with you, Brent, that I can't write a half a sentence without a footnote. And as a historian, you sort of stand back analytically. And I remember as Craig and I started working together and, and, and Craig, you know, showed me his first crack at writing this. I thought, okay, this is very different. But, you know, as I journeyed with Craig on this and we worked together, first of all, I think the payoff is enormous in terms of it being a gripping story and being entered like front row seat, like you're watching a film or like you're in live theater. You, It's not stepping back analytically to comment on it, you know, as an author, but you're just immersing the reader in the flow of it and letting them feel it, all its tensions, all its grit and so on. But in the end, my experience, you know, that the, the show don't tell to see it and to feel it. Uh, Craig kept pushing me to be a better historian because I realized I hadn't fully visualized John Newton. I remember one of the first chapters, you know, Craig said something about the young John Newton polishing one of his knee buckles. And I'm going, what's a knee buckle? And I'm looking up 18th century costume and how stockings are joined to breeches and when knee buckles were introduced. And it's such a trivial example, but it means it demanded that I actually see John Newton in his world. And uh, when there's a storm at sea, and the ship is listing. I actually had a picture that it's on the starboard side where the damage is. And that's why the ship is bearing north and they might not make it to Ireland. But it was literally because of this style of writing that I actually kept finding out new things as a historian. But even more important, and this is one of Craig's gifts, I feel like the whole story goes through Craig's body and his emotions and so on as he writes, is it forced me to really ask again and again with Craig, what did it feel like to be a six-year-old boy and lose your mother when your father's away at sea? What did it feel like to fall in love with this young woman in the house where your mother had died and when you feel alienated from your stepfamily and you feel like maybe you found like a new family. And again and again, it was the effort to feel what John Newton was feeling that I, I feel like it, it demanded more, not less of me as a historian. Yeah, and it's an extremely raw and vital story. I was just saying to Craig, it, it, you, really, you really live it with the characters. I did. Um, and it, it's, shock, it's actually a, a really shocking story. And I, knew, I thought I knew a bit about John Newton, but I found I knew almost nothing about John Newton. In the time we've got left, gentlemen, I'd love to push on with some questions about about Newton's life because there's so much I want to ask you both. You, you mentioned Newton's mother. How did his mum's his mother's death affect him? Do you think? I think it was the one of the first great crises of his life. I think it was quite probably quite traumatizing. He learned the hymns of Isaac Watts at his mother's knee. He spoke of her quite affectionately and all that she intended for him. And I think it was like leaving, you know, leaving the Garden of Eden for him. Like this was the moment when when um, everything that he knew, everything that was solid melted into air. And uh, I think it was a very deep grief. And uh, he talked about his father, who was a, a merchant seaman, who was often away, being remote, being severe. And then the new step family, he felt like he didn't fit. And again, I think Craig had a very deep understanding of that emotionally and entered into that with um, with John Newton. You know, we we filmed uh, a scene for the the documentary, and it was very moving. We had a six year old boy 
standing alone in front of a coffin in an almost empty church. The camera comes up through the candles over the edge of the coffin, and you just see this little boy standing all alone. And I thought, that's it. That's what it was. All of a sudden, he's alone in the world. And uh, and it's good to feel that, because in most biographies, you just sort of skip over that in a couple sentences. But I think that was the first big um, loss in his life. Yes, and then there's the uh, the the problem. Can I call him the problematic father because he, uh, he wasn't? I mean, it's not the sort of of father you'd kind of want to have to confront every day. But I wonder what sort of man Newton's father was. There's a sense, isn't there, that he he had a bit of swagger about it. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Was, yeah, yeah, and I love I love the idea that like just before Newton was press ganged, so kind of like legally kidnapped by the by the British Navy and forced into service, he was swagging around portside, wearing his sailor's, his sailor's coat, possibly maybe trying to emulate his father, maybe looking for a bit of approval and that. We don't know, we're just, we're just guessing. And, you know, and all these kind of things, you're, it's like big T truth or small T truth. And, we're kind of going for big T truth and in, in, in hoping that occasionally when we're making a little bit of a guess that um, that a reader is going to bear with us. But yeah, he he clearly, yeah, his father was clearly stern. He was clearly, you know, I think it was maybe slightly divisive, perhaps. Some people had, you know, some people liked him, some people didn't. And one thing which we didn't, which I feel, I do kind of regret, we never really got to pull this one out in the story, but um, his father is jumping ahead a little bit, but they, they were they almost kind of had this this sort of um, this reuniting at the end. They almost got to meet, but for some uh, differences in kind of travel plans and that kind of stuff, they didn't get to see each other again. But I wonder whether what that would have been like. How, what would that moment have been like? It would have been because we never know, never happened. But I think it would have been. I think it would have been good. You know, his father. He at his lowest point, he reached out to his father for rescue, and his, and his father sent rescue. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's a, a very complex relationship. Rido, if I can just bring you in here, what were your thoughts about John Newton's early years, and the father and the whole relationship and the, the Navy and all the rest of it? It's complex, isn't it? And it kind of shows the complexity of who we are as human beings. The complexity, how that plays out in his life, I think you know, what we see is something beautiful comes out of it, even though it is, yeah, kind of it is, like all of us, it's messy. Horrifying, I would have thought. I mean, you mentioned Craig being press ganged. Now we better um, just enlarge on this because this happened, didn't it? In um, in in them in those days, you could be taken off the street by the navy if they were short of seamen. Yeah, so they were. There was a war with France was was just about to happen, and um, yeah, they they needed grunts. They needed they needed guys to 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 go up on and and to man ships. And um, yeah, you were a bit of a fool if you. If you went to the wrong place, if you went down the dockside looking like you knew how to sail, and there he was. And, and like, really, you're right, the complexity is is really there because, so we've got a story that ultimately is about, well, not ultimately, but for a large part of it, and part of the complexity is around someone who was a slave trader who was captured also himself and held effectively against his will and forced onto a boat. And, um, and at one point was was looking at five years ahead of him of being shipped around the world. Um, he was able to escape and his his incarceration, his captivity was limited. So we're not trying to say that, you know, it's, it, it's equal as all, but, but it's complex, you know, it's really mm -hmm. complex. And um, yeah, 
Yeah, for sure. One of the things that fascinated me in the book, and I didn't know anything about this, was that John himself became a slave mm-hmm. and was imprisoned. Can one of you or both of you tell us briefly about that? So he was in the Navy for about six months. And at first he was um, a junior officer. His father had gotten him promoted. And again, the kind of swagger and kind of lording it over the common seamen came back to haunt him when um, he went AWOL, was recaptured, brought back on board the ship, and then demoted. So all of a sudden he has to go before the mast with the other common seamen. And it's a very low point. He's kind of abused. He's uh, whipped with a cat of nine tails. He had thoughts of murder-suicide when they're leaving, uh, uh, leaving England. And I think he was pretty troublesome, and the captain had an opportunity to exchange him uh, with a Guinea ship, uh, uh, a merchant ship off the coast of West Africa. So they traded some sailors for some Navy uh, sailors, and Newton was one of those who got to escape the Navy. I think he was just relieved that he was out of the Navy, and uh, and he ended up on this Guinea ship that began. So all of a sudden he sort of almost accidentally drops down into the slave trade. He's relieved he's out of the Navy and this ship is beginning to trade along the West African coast. And he, he said his motto in those years when he looked back uh, was ne- uh, never deliberate. It was like, uh, it was just like, go for it. Uh, don't even think he's got, we used to say about, you know, teenagers, when do they, grow a prefrontal cortex and begin to, you know, evaluate their decisions. He just plunged into things headlong. And one of the things he did is he he saw an opportunity to be an apprentice to a slave wholesaler who was going to work on shore on a coastal fort, build a new coastal fort and kind of gather slaves there and prepare them to sell in the slave trade. So he goes on shore, Plantain Island off of Sierra Leone, little island, I think it's about three miles long, a couple miles wide, something like that. And uh, but he fell out of favor with the um, uh, his master and his master's uh, black mistress, and uh, he ends up malarial, sort of uh, near death illness. He ends up in chains. They have him chained up. He ends up abused. He ends up nearly dying, unloved, in chains, diseased, uh, far from home. And it's kind of a, a quite a low point for him. And the surprise is that it didn't give him sort of some immediate sympathy with the other slaves because uh, he ends up rescued from this. He ends up out of those those conditions. He ends up on a ship bound back for England. And it's uh, it's not a slave ship. It's, uh, it's carrying other kinds of cargo. And it's in the midst of a North Atlantic storm in 1748, coming back out of all of this misery that he has another near-death experience in the midst of the storm. And that's where he first cries out to God for mercy. And after he does that in the middle of the storm, he thinks, who am I to think there's mercy for me? And he sort of begins begins his path sort of back to God, uh, back to the faith of his childhood. But it's he, he said it was like, it's not like the Damascus Road flash, even though I'm sure there were flashes of lightning in the storm. And it's a dramatic story. Craig says it's like it's made for television. But, uh, but he said... It was more like the slow dawning of the day. It was more like twilight, and only gradually does the light get brighter, and that his his conversion and coming to Christ, that it actually was a long journey. to And, and we try to let the reader feel that, because it takes time. 
and he doesn't immediately leave the slave trade. That's the most shocking part of the story, and I think the most uncomfortable part of the story, probably for the reader. Yes, uh, he was still investing in the slave trade even after he left uh, seafaring, wasn't he? Yeah, effectively. For a period. Yeah. Yeah. How did how did he actually leave the navy? How did he actually how did he actually leave the whole business and get out? Leave the navy or leave, leave the, the navy? Slave yeah, trade? yeah. Leave the, the navy, navy itself. Yeah. He, uh, one morning, he sort of awakened suddenly and hears that there's a, a merchant ship alongside the Navy ship and that they're making this exchange of, uh, of sailors. And he asked the captain if, 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 you know, can you pick me? Could I be one of the people to go? And the captain says, yes. And within a few hours of waking up, he finds himself out of the Navy. So it's 1745. The, the Navy ship was going to be gone for a five-year tour of duty to the East Indies, and he was desperate about this. And um, and his condition in the Navy was uh, was awful. Uh, historians of the, the Navy in this period call impressment and serving before the mast in the Navy white man's slavery. It was quite a brutal life, so he was just glad to get out. So um, So that's how that happened. In seven, yeah. May 1745. Yeah, and how did he come to be ordained in the Church of England and um, have a very powerful and effective ministry? It's quite a bit later. It's um, He leaves the slave trade in 1754, and he is a kind of, he works in a kind of civil service job. He's a lay person. He's learning more about faith. He's uh, teaching himself different languages. He begins to think, having received mercy and having such a dramatic story, maybe he could help other people uh, find that same grace and forgiveness that he knew. So it's a long journey as a lay person. And in 1764, after trying sort of several doors and finding them closed and returning again, it's a long journey, but he ends up ordained in the Church of England. And he serves a small market town only, you know, in the Midlands. And a quiet parish, it's a parish of maybe 2,000 people, and uh, he comes there and uh, becomes a minister, and he sees a kind of spiritual awakening happen. They have to add a balcony. People are coming to services. He evidently is a powerful preacher. He is writing hymns to go along with the sermon each week. He seems to become a quite a wise spiritual counselor. And he's writing letters pretty soon to hundreds of people all over the country, offering spiritual advice uh, as they as they write to him. It's 25 years after that storm, after that conversion, uh, his initial turning to Christ is 25 years later as a minister in this market town that he writes Amazing Grace. So he's not writing Amazing Grace while the you know, waves are crashing over the gunnels and so on. It's 25 years later as a parish priest, as uh, in his day-to-day -day ministry, that he writes the hymn. And how did it come to be written? Because Newton wrote hymns to go with his sermons, didn't he? He did. He did. He. Uh, it was at the end of the year in 1772, and he's thinking about the service the next day on January the 1st. And it's a time to January 1st, passing of time, a time to look back a time to look ahead, and he's kind of flipping through his Bible, thinking about what to speak on, and he thinks about King David when the prophet Nathan came to him. He had wanted to build God's temple, and Nathan said, no, you're not going to build God's house. God is going to build your house and your dynasty. And David says, who am I? You have spoken of you know, your servant this way. You've spoken not just of the past, but of the future. 
And David says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And uh, David says, grace has brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. And that's the hymn that Newton writes to go along with the sermon. And so he's writing it for his parish. He's thinking about God's grace to David, a murderous and adulterous king who should be disqualified from being a part of God's big story. But instead, he finds that uh, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. And Newton feels like, well, this is the perfect story. This is the perfect sermon. And here's the hymn to go along with it. And then we, looking back, can see this is an epitome of Newton's story. And of course, it's all our stories uh, that we we find that we need this sort of grace. It's um, and it's you know Newton probably already was developing anti-slavery sentiment. There's some good signs that he is, and some people have been writing about that recently. That he probably early had that, but he comes to see all the implications of this when he moves to London in the 1780s, and that's when he begins to take a stand. Um, publicly against the slave trade. But again, we let the reader feel that, why is that taking so long? Mm -hmm. You know, it takes a while, but when he does realize it, then he really, you know, comes out. He supports William Wilberforce. He gives evidence to the Privy Council. He writes against the slave trade and he tries to utterly demolish the system that he had been such a big part of. Yes, and that took many years, isn't it? How did Newton and Wilberforce come to see the end of the slave trade? Not long before both of them died, I think. Well, Newton didn't get to see the, the, the final, final end of it, but he got to see part of it, didn't he? Mm -hmm. He, um, you know, it was a long journey. As, you know, 1785, Wilberforce's sort of conversion, he thinks maybe he should leave politics because he's becoming a Christian. He walks out to see his childhood pastor. He had known Newton for a period in his childhood. He walks around the block a couple times. He doesn't want anybody to see him as a politician and a man about town visiting with this, you know, fanatical, methodistical minister. Uh, but he knocks on the door and Newton takes him in and Newton counsels him and Newton counsels him to stay in politics and to do sort of to do what he could, you know, in, in that role. And uh, he becomes like a spiritual director to Wilberforce. And Wilberforce, you know, is a part, uh, you know, there's a, a, a committee that uh, is established. Um, a lot of Quakers are key key figures here. There are certain Enlightenment sort of uh, figures with ideas of liberty. There's a number of forces for abolition that are breaking the surface in the 1780s. And there ends up being a campaign. Public opinion is mobilized like never before. But Wilberforce, year after year after year, brings a bill for the abolition of slavery, and they keep having to hammer away at it and hammer away at it. There's no question that Newton made a big contribution with the things he was writing. He wrote a tract against the slave trade that was a key piece of um, publicity, or I don't, I don't know what you call it, but a, a key part of the public campaign. But it was in 1807 that uh, the bill passed uh, in the spring of that year. And it's in the winter of that year, as Craig wrote about so beautifully, um, that, that John Newton dies. So that uh, so John Newton lived to see, um, see abolition um, achieved. Yeah, Craig, just in the few minutes we've got left, do you feel that there's a sense of completion at the end of Newton's life? I'm funny, I'm just thinking about that. As, um, I think one of the, the, the difficulties I had at the start was having a sense that 
some people want to put Newton on a pedestal. Some people want to topple the statue. You know, so we didn't want to do either. Um, how do you find that middle ground? What is it that you're trying to say about him? And certainly there are times when he's not very likable um, as a youth. And then there are times when you, I felt like it's easy to have great sympathy for him. You know, his wife is dying of cancer at the time at which he and uh, he was collaborating with Wilberforce and the others to speak out against the slave trade. I feel like I feel like there's completion in, in the sense that his he clearly and Bruce articulates it really nicely. But he he clearly had a sense of his shame, had a sense of 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 of, of his failings. Um, talked about I need to walk softly all my days because of what I've done. But then also I think was able to take a risk and speak out and to experience. I think. I think he was aware of forgiveness and grace. You know, I, I think on a, on a deep level, not just on an intellectual level, I think that must have happened on a deep level. So, yeah, I think as much as our stories never really end while we're here on Earth, you know, the, the, the finish line is a little bit further down the way. I think that was completion. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I certainly felt that, um, the way he wrote and the way he wrote it and uh, in the way events panned out. Uh, Ian, in the last minute or two, your thoughts? I just want to echo what Craig kind of said, that the... Yeah, kind of the two poles are not are not fair of any human being, are they? In terms of the, uh, and you know, in, in Newton's own words, you know, the I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great saviour. Yeah, kind of, a, yep. you know, it's so important. You know, kind of that he's just a snapshot of of the beauty I think of God's grace that flows through all of us. You know, in in that truth. You know, kind of yeah. Yeah, and you can see God's hand on his life, even in the rebellious years, you know, and even at the moments when he's at his lowest, the, all the, all these events occur for a purpose, really, in his life. I found it amazing. It's a fascinating book, a gripping read from W Publishing Group, an imprint of Thomas Nelson, authors Bruce Hindmarsh and Craig Borlase. And the book is called Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton and the Surprising Story Behind the Song. And you mentioned a film coming out, gentlemen. In the, yes. In, yes. The last couple of minutes, tell us about the film. Um, there's a, uh, a film Craig and I have collaborated on the script together with uh, the director, and uh, the principal filming is done. And it's sort of based on the book and based on a uh, an academic paper that I gave uh, as a part of the anniversary. And it will tell the story of John Newton, but it will also tell more than even more than we do in the book, the story of the song Amazing Grace itself. It has some terrific actors doing some of the reenactments. Uh, John Reese davies um, is the old John Newton to hear him say, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, um, that I'm a great sinner and I have a great savior just makes that come alive. Uh, they've done some filming with tall ships and so on to recreate the storm scenes. And so all of that's being edited together so that it will tell the story of John Newton and tell the story of amazing grace. There's lots of music kingdom, the kingdom choir, a gospel choir, that performed, I think, at uh, Harry and Meghan's wedding. They're the famous gospel choir. They're singing in this film, and it's powerful to hear this black uh, choir singing Amazing Grace under the pulpit of a former slave trader. It just, you can feel the joy and the universality of this message of grace. So I think there's lots to come, and hopefully that'll be um, released either uh, at the end of this year or early in January, uh, I am told. Wonderful. We look forward to it. Yes. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Gentlemen all, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you, thank, Brent. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.